Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is Doug Zarkin, former CMO of Pearl Vision. Doug's won Effie Awards and Clio Awards and countless other awards that I can't even think of. I've known Doug for well over 10 years, and he is absolutely one of the brightest minds in all of marketing that I've ever met. And he's just a really good guy. Our conversation ranged from his thoughts on why emotions are so important when it comes to advertising, to what he deemed his most successful failure, to what it was like to be an Avon lady. I am beyond honored, beyond humbled to A, call him my friend, and to have him a guest on my show. Please welcome Doug Zarkin. Thanks for having me, buddy. Congratulations on this. It's it's very, very um, infrequent in life that you meet people in business that you have an instant connection to. And I know you and I first got together, your day is writing for Forbes, and just the way in which you approach the questions and the story, I instantaneously knew you and I would, would stay together and stay in touch throughout your career and mine. So well, listen, it's a privilege the, the to pleasure be here is with you. all mine. And like we were saying before we started rolling, we've had so many of these types of conversations, right? The only difference is now it's being recorded and we have a microphone in front of us. So I want to give the, the audience a, a quick glimpse into your background, which is unbelievably varied. And I learned something that I did not know about you. I did know you started at Gray in your advertising world. I had no idea about this other company, or I think you called it a partner company, called G-Wiz. Tell me about it. So crazy. It's a crazy story. So, you know, coming out of graduate school, pre-LinkedIn, there was really very few places in the world to go to for career advice. And so I went to a really good family friend of mine, and and he said, look, if you eventually want to run a business and run a brand, you got to get on at the end of the train and work your way to the front. And so I began my career truly at the end of the train. And that was in the media world, in in the world of advertising, and worked my way up through account management. And then in my late 20s, I was working for Gray Advertising and was challenged really with working with some of our largest global clients, Eminem Mars being a big one, and was doing a lot of work in sort of portfolio management and portfolio alignment. And the the CEO at the time, Ed Meyer, came to me and, and my boss and said, look, I love what you guys are doing. The clients are seeing tremendous value. Why don't you start a partner company really focusing on this notion of mindset marketing? You know, back then, pre in the age of first party data, most marketers would buy media based on, you know, what your age was and your driver's license. And what we were doing was really focusing on what was in your mind, not what it said on your license. You know, the notion of mindset, not age set. And so we started GWIS eventually took over the entertainment division of Gray Advertising. And with that, really focused on optimizing global portfolio brands. Had a chance to work with Starwood on the launch of the W Hotel brand, Warner Brothers Theatrical and Home Video. I had the amazing, amazing privilege of writing the brand architecture for the consumer products division of Warner Brothers for a little franchise they had bought called Harry Potter. And you know they were so concerned that that company was gonna pilfer that brand. They wanted every movie to be bigger than the next. And so we went in as an outside agency and helped them really understand the strategic principles to how to make the brand resonate, much like in the way in the world today of Barbie with the world of Harry Potter. 
Reebok was one of the clients I had the most fun. If you're watching this, you'll see that you know my background is not a sports bar. These are all experiences and opportunities and working with the leagues that I had through partnerships at Reebok. We worked with the NHL, Konami Video Games, Seagrams. It was just an incredible opportunity to really dip my toe in the water of working at a whole bunch of different verticals to eventually figure out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And you know, who knew that my next move would actually becoming one of the few men that can say proudly that he was an Avon lady <laughs> when I made the jump to the client side to help reinvent the direct selling model and bring in a, a much younger, more upscale, both buyer of product, but most importantly, new sales force. Well, you I just teed it up. Brand. I mean, this is why we get along so well, right? You're reading my mind about, okay, your next stop after Gray was at Avon. And But talk about the, the brand Mark. Yeah. So I met the leadership team at Avon. I was presenting about the power of young women as a buying audience at the Fragrance Foundation's annual summit. And sitting in the audience was somebody from Avon. And they approached me after the presentation and I was sitting on a dais with Jane Lauder, who just introduced herself as Jane. And I didn't realize until midway through the presentation that who she was. And they came up and said, listen, we love what you're doing. We'd love to talk to you. And I said, great, you know, I'll bring the agency in and we'll come in, we'll do a pitch. And they said, no, no, we'd like to talk to you. And the notion was that came from the brilliant mind of our chairman, Andrea Jung, was she recognized that there was a generational challenge with Avon products, that it had really become your mother's Avon. But yet the technology and the innovation and the passion and the relationship was a model that really should have stickiness, but she didn't know what to do with it. And so I was brought in as part of kind of the new business team. And I spent my first six weeks in the field working with our representatives selling lip gloss door to door. And the reason was very, very simple. Not because it would make for an amazing story to tell at a bar or a way to torture my daughter, but a way to really understand what exists in order to figure out what it can become. And by going into the field, what I demonstrated to the org was an appreciation about the power of listening in order to lead. Going door to door, understanding the mechanics, the philosophies, the passion that the representatives really had, and also frankly where the gaps were. So that when it became time to lay out the business plan and the vision for what eventually became Mark from Avon, it started with let's build on what we have and then let's create something new. The idea of moving to almost a completely digital ecosystem for order submission and training one of the coolest partnerships that I was able to forge during my time there was to take the learning platform to teach somebody actually how to sell Mark. And I partnered with the University of Phoenix and created a college credit worthy course that not only allowed young women to learn how to sell, but also got them a college credit. And so the value proposition was there, emphasizing the fact that we weren't going to spray and pray, but really trying to find concentric circles of where young women congregated. And again, this was pre-Instagram, the very early days of Facebook. And so we developed a strategy to focus on the top 50 female populated college campuses and built out an ambassador program where we recruited young women that were powerful, smart, and yes, beautiful. And that combination was so easy to find and really brought them into the fold as ambassadors because we needed people to want to buy the product in order to eventually want to sell it. And the results of that business, we took that business to 118 million in incremental sales in the first 18 months. I think it, it you know, candidly surprised us. Uh, Women's Wear was, was very generous in awarding us the best executed launch strategy. And it was really the first time in my career 
as a client that I started to see a degree of success. And it, it gave me a really good boost of confidence to believe that this is what I wanted to do in my life. So before we go to your next stop, you said something that, that caught my ear and resonated resoundingly with me. And that is you went into the field. You went on the streets literally to actually ask and engage and hear what your buyers, potential buyers, prospects, whatever you want to call them, what they thought. To me, it is such a, it still blows my mind when I see like research, for example, that shows what marketers think consumers want. And I go, who, who cares what we think, right? Ask them what they think. Ask them what they want. Go to that horse's mouth. And it's still lost in 2023. So I'm not saying you were some, you were ahead of the game because you were just doing what to you was common sense and still is. But I want, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop on that point to remind anybody listening and watching this going, guys, it's not about what we think. It's about what they think. And it was, it was, I appreciate it. And it was really grounded in, in two things. One, I had no idea the difference between a lipstick and a lip gloss. And so I, I really needed to learn the business. But most importantly, going to a, a company that is called the company for women as a guy, I needed to understand the culture. It was about not just about survival, but it was about how could I optimize my presence and really earn credibility in a business that really was a generational business. You know, their grandmother sold Avon and so they sold Avon. And, you know, associates retention at that organization was tremendous. And it really was because Andrea, you know, was one of the most inspiring leaders and her philosophy of really focusing on people made a huge impact in my life. But I think for us as marketers, us as, as, as leaders, the most important tool that you have in your toolbox are your frontline associates. And if you want to understand your business at the pragmatic level, Go talk to somebody who's working in one of your stores. If you're in an e-com business, work in customer service. Don't shy away from getting the good, the bad, and the ugly of your business. And if you have a question, all you got to do is ask, and they'll tell you. And never assume. No. And, you know, look, you said something earlier. Marketers shouldn't think that the consumer is going to tell them what to do. The consumer is going to tell them what to think. Your job as a marketer is to take that thinking and try to delve deeper and figure out what the insight is. You know, what's missing? Consumers don't outline strategies for marketers. Consumers respond, consumers give you feedback, but strategies really come from insights and insights really come from getting into the, the dirt of your business and going at it from the inside out. Very well said. Okay, so after Avon, I know you went to Victoria's Secret. Yeah, uh, at a very different time in, in, in the world. When I got recruited to go to Victoria's Secret to, to head up, a brand that was in test market called Victoria's Secret Pink. It was like being recruited as the center fielder of the New York Yankees. The jet, the dinners, the limos, it was very, very glamorous. And, you know, for me at the time, I think I was so excited that perhaps the journey I was on in my career was going to be a good one because I had had some immediate success at Mark that I went to Victoria's Secret for the wrong reason. It was honestly, it was, a, it was a pure, and I can say this unadulterated, and I'm not embarrassed because a lot of us make these mistakes in our life. It was a pure money play. You know, I went, it was a huge, huge paycheck. And what I didn't understand in going was the culture that existed in the organization that would make it very difficult for anybody 
who had a point of view to succeed. Hmm. Do you, uh, any regrets? I call it a successful failure. I really do. You know, you had a founder led business with a founder who was extremely passionate, brilliant about certain things. And in my opinion, unbelievably ignorant about others. And a lot of that ignorance has come out and been publicized in the press. So it's not worth wasting time on your, on your podcast to go through it. But what I learned, I am incredibly grateful for about myself, about what I was really good at as a leader. And frankly, what I was not really good at as a leader. And, you know, as leaders, we don't love to talk about our failures. That absolutely was a successful failure. I was able to deliver great business results. I was able to, to evolve that brand into more than just a product line, but a cross category business. But it was not a stop that I'm as proud of as perhaps I am about my time at Pearl Vision. But to your credit, you took it as a learning lesson. I turn it as a life lesson. You know, you as a marketer, when it comes to data, have to recognize that data is only as good as the questions that you ask. Finding the right opportunity isn't just about what is on the paper, it is about the questions you ask and how that fits in with your belief system as a person, as a leader. You know, what is the value of human capital? How does the organization think about its people? The business part of it is, in most cases, the easy part. The hardest part as leaders is the fact that we actually have to lead. Yeah, I know. That kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It sounds so obvious, right? Leadership is, 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 is not a one-size-fits-all at all. There are certain principles as a leader that I have. You know, I'm somebody who absolutely, when it comes to leadership, hires people for passion. I want people that are excited about what they do. I require purpose, so I, I want to surround myself with people that have intent and go about their day and their life at work with focus. But I think most importantly, creating a culture where you celebrate progress. You know, marketing is a results-driven discipline for sure. And when you set a, a target, let's say it's a plus five, and you deliver a plus three, the Achilles heel of many is that you focus on the fact that you missed target versus taking a moment to celebrate, how did we get plus three? Anytime you can be better than you were a year before, it's something to be proud of. Celebrate that moment and then begin to interrogate that moment to understand, was there something that we did? Did we just simply over forecast? Did we miss? How can we improve so that next time we set a target, we can hit it? But that celebration of progress is not just about the business, but it's also about how people on your team grow. You know, somebody has a good meeting, pick up the phone and tell them. Don't wait till their annual review. Somebody has a not so good meeting, pick up the phone and tell them. Give them real-time feedback. That's how you create that high-performing team of superheroes. I have nothing to add to that. Um, let's move on. In 2012, you moved to Luxottica. Yeah. As the chief marketing officer for Pearl Vision, the accolades are... I'm looking at them now as I look away from the, they're just incredible. Top 10 most profitable franchise brands alongside McDonald's and Dunkin'. Are you kidding me? Talk to me about this. This it's, it Start here because I'm really fascinated by this. The subject of a Harvard Business School case study on brand rejuvenation. Yeah. You know, I wish my father really understood what I did. You know, even even with the the privilege of being put on a bunch of top 10 lists and a lot of acrylic awards that sit on a shelf or in a box. You know, my dad still doesn't necessarily fundamentally understand what I do. But what I will say about the journey at Pearl was that it absolutely was not 
solely about marketing. When I joined the business, this brand, which at the time was about 50 years old, was, was doing okay. But what it found itself was kind of stuck in that friend zone, so to speak. And we all know what the friend zone is when we were dating, right? You know, I like them, they're cute, she's cute, but I don't necessarily want to go that next level. That's what Pearl was. Pearl had had five different brand positionings in eight years. And as a result, it meant everything to everybody. It had no crispness, it had no sharpness, Steve. And the challenge was really, how could we revitalize the brand and bring some angles to it that allowed it to establish its point of view in the marketplace? It was a brand that had a deep heritage founded by a doctor, Stanley Pearl. And when Harvard approached us about the challenge, it was because the marketplace was so competitive and so highly commoditized. And yet this brand was iconic and actually had created the notion of taking the doctor and the retail side of optical and bringing them together, yet it wasn't thriving. And so I had the privilege of being very involved in the writing of the case even though I wish my name was, was listed as an author, somehow it got left off. That's a whole nother podcast. But I've had the privilege of teaching that course, that case, excuse me, at Harvard Business School a few times and engaging with the students as to actually what really happened. You know, a lot of times, you know, the, the infamous Caterpillar, Caterpillar tractor case study, you know, that, that I remember that I did. And being able to sit in the room and give the students the answers to the questions after listening to how they processed it was incredibly exciting for me. You know, as somebody who looks at education as a way to prime the pump, not the reason you hire somebody, but a way to help you learn how to think, it was really interesting to engage with these students, you know, arguably the best of the best, and see how they would process through the, the, the solution. And interesting enough, some of them got the right answer, many of them didn't. And I say right because there necessarily isn't a wrong way to do a brand rejuvenation. Just the way that we picked just happened to be the right one. So I can remember from my ad agency days, I remember working with a brand and we were going, we were calling, and this is, this is semantics. And this is the reason I'm asking this because you used the word rejuvenation and it was, the company was adamant to say, do not call this a rebrand right? Because of the connotation. And before that, I had never even thought of like, what, what are you talking about? What connotation? Cause then they explained to me saying, well, some people will look at going, what was wrong with the brand before that? So why are you rebranding? And so the word rejuvenation is very interesting to me. And I would assume that was, a, that was, was that a strategically used word? It was because you, you had a brand that had incredible brand awareness you had a brand that was still delivering positive comp growth, but you didn't have a brand that could be predictive and controlling its own fate. It was using aggressive discounts and deals to foster comp growth. It wasn't leveraging its heritage at all. You know, in the 70s and 80s, it was the notion of nobody cares for eyes more than Pearl. And when I joined the business, that mantra had been taken out of the business the brand had really started to focus way too much on the what and lost its essence, which is what made it different, which was the how. You know, when you're selling Ray-Bans and one out of every two sunglasses in the world sold as a Ray-Ban, because you sell Ray-Ban doesn't distinguish you, especially when your competitors within the same company sell it and your, your independent doctors of optometry sell it. Where I really wanted to take the business and eventually was able to was really focusing on the quality of care. 
was really leaning heavily back into the heritage that Dr. Pearl believed in, which started with a best-in-class doctor with an unmatched commitment to care, from the exam room to the retail floor. That fed into the brand positioning, which then fed into the reason to believe that nobody cares for eyes more than Pearl. And to say it worked, I would venture to say it's worked pretty well. The brand is the, the now the number one brand on in its category on Entrepreneur's Top 500 Franchise Brand. It's top 7% of all franchise brands on that top list. As you mentioned, location profitability in the same realm as McDonald's and Dunkin'. So, you know, a brand that really has made the jump from discounted deals to now being ranked number one on Google for quality of care perception. This is absolutely a topic for another episode, and I will have you back on to talk about this specifically because I am fascinated because listening to you and I'm going, this is transcending just a traditional chief marketing officer role and responsibility, what you did at this brand. So I want to table that for right now because I will absolutely want to have you back on to talk specifically about that because it is fascinating. And I think my audience would agree with that. But let's move on. I want to get into you know picking your expert brain from a marketing perspective and then also get into the granularity of what it's like to be a CMO, right? So let me start with a question that I get all the time. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dad. It's a good question. Um, So marketing is really about positioning, which is really about the art of sacrifice. You know, marketing is about motivating a consumer to do what we want them to do when we want them to do it. It's an unbelievably arrogant undertaking when you think about it. Advertising is a component of a marketing plan, a marketing approach. So because you create a television commercial doesn't mean that you are going to motivate that consumer to take the action you want them to take when you want them to take it. The same thing with creating a display ad creating search terms. Those are individual things you do. Marketing is really about showcasing the brand's values. I mean, look, the difference between a product and a brand is that a brand is nothing more than a set of values, ideals, emotions, beliefs that are held by a common group of people. And that group expands as you start selling products from your brand. A brand is something that's sold. It lives on a shelf virtually or otherwise. Traditionally, when people think of advertising, they think more of product than they do of brand. But in today's ecosystem, where a Instagram influencer brand is created, or product is created every single day, and you know you used to stay up late and you couldn't fall asleep and you turn on home shopping or QVC and you'd end up with a bunch of crazy packages on your door three weeks later, now you're on Instagram and you're like, oh yeah, sure, I need that. And so brands have to recognize, and I think many of the good ones have, that they have to use their marketing to really drive a much stronger brand value equation than just purely selling the product that they're hawking at the moment. Perfect answer. There's no wrong answer, right? But it's always an, it's, 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 I could ask, and I'll ask every guest what the difference is. And people are like, oh, okay. You know, and I get asked all the time, but you mentioned the word motivation in your, in your answer there which evokes emotion, right? So we're working right now at System One Group. We're a creative effectiveness platform. And I know you're familiar with the company and everything we do is rooted in emotion and we measure people's emotions to a given stimulus, whether it's a broadcast ad, a print ad, 
a billboard, whatever. So I want to get your thoughts on emotion when it comes to marketing and creative and advertising and how much should be used, when it should be used. What are your personal thoughts? What what did you do when you were CMO of, of Pearl? Did you factor in, is this ad going to move someone to some emotion? Did you, did you have that forethought? All right, so you can put this on a t-shirt. Consumers make emotional decisions before they make rational choices in the same way that you can't have a rational conversation with an emotional person. Let's take the former first. When we think about the experiences and that we have in our life, the restaurants that we go to, the trips that we take, when we describe them, it is not about the pool was heated to 87 degrees. It's the pool was awesome. The restaurant it's the experience. And then you get into, I had the best steak. Why is it the best steak? We as consumers, and system one is really good at, at really tracking this idea called emotional dynamism, which is how do you really resonate with somebody at an emotional level to create that lean-in factor that is that rational choice? So in the case of Pearl, we recognized that we were really in the in the game of earning trust and we were doing it through showcasing that the doctors of optometry and the eye care experts really take the time to ask the questions and most importantly, listen to the questions that a consumer has. And it was those small moments of care and connection that really was what was critical. And that was the intersection of where the brands and our target came together. And so long story short, you can win a rational battle for market share if you truly have something that at a pure rational level is unbelievable or game-changing. When it is not your depth of difference, you have to drive a stronger depth of difference through a stronger emotional connection. Yeah. And the former, I would imagine there's not many that can do that from a rational perspective, just by the law of averages, right? There's just not that many. Right. I love averages. Um, very, very, very interesting stuff. I'm going to share a stat with you that I've made up myself. <laughs> and it's completely unscientific, but I use it all the time. And it goes like this. And I want your thoughts on it. I firmly believe 75% of all successful brands in the world are completely successful in spite of themselves. I don't disagree with the premise. I probably would challenge the the percentage. Okay, higher or lower? I think it's lower. And the reason why I think it's lower is because those larger brands have boards and owners and stockholders. And if, if you're completely blind and have no sense of being able to be predictive in your results, you would see a stock market, especially in the consumer products world, that is a, a roller coaster upon all roller coasters. The marketplace demands a degree of predictability. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a windfall year. That doesn't mean that you can't be completely off and have a devastating year from a performance perspective. But you've got to be able to be a degree, have a degree of predictivity. If you are that clueless in your business that you're successful in spite of yourself, it's definitely what I would call more of a brand that lives in the world of brand fling than a brand that lives in the world of brand love. You know, think about it in the world of music, right? I know you're a music fan. I am. Okay. Take, take the, the, what I think is one of the, the greatest one hit wonders ever made. Take on me by the band. Aha. Remember that, of right? Course. Remember the video, of course. you know, the, 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 the comic book video. Iconic. 
Now you may know, but most people don't. Name another song that they ever put out. We could sit here for hours. I wouldn't be able to. Hours, hours. The reason why there are one hit wonders in music is because they hit something, they hit it at the right point and it was hard to replicate. And brands, it's the same thing. You may strike gold once and you may be able to ride that out for three to four years. But if you are not really in touch with the reasons why, you can find yourself very quickly out of business. Just ask the folks at Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, terrible story. Iconic brand. Loved going in there. Loved it. Could spend hours in Bed Bath & Beyond. Company went bankrupt. You got to be kidding me. Yeah, I know. I know. And I'm friends with the now former CMO. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's a case study. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it really is. Okay. Let me, let's move into what's, what it's like to be a CMO, right? First question. What's a few misconceptions people have about the role? It is definitely not all about the, the show. It is about the dough. Meaning, yes, you go on photo shoots and yes, you, you can develop strategic partnerships and certainly there is a glamorous side to it but that's probably 20% of what it is. It's about the dough. Marketing is about driving results. Marketing and the world of being a CMO requires you to be as good a listener as you are a leader. Marketing is one of those disciplines as the leader of the function that you are in constant, constant defensive mode. Meaning anybody who ever took a class in college or has a relative, a niece, a nephew, a cousin that works at an ad agency, has a point of view. The subjectivity of marketing is part of what I love about it. Marketing is an art and a science. Accounting is accounting, right? Finance, you know, there's only so much creativity you can have on a spreadsheet before you end up in, you know, lawn poke. You know, marketing is one of those disciplines that is highly subjective. And it's one of those disciplines where you can very easily be trapped into a paint by numbers approach. If you don't have what we talked about earlier, that guttural instinct about your business and your brand, marketers have to be humble as much as they have to be arrogant. They have to believe and be confident enough that they can get into the mindset of a consumer and motivate them to do what they want them to do when they want them to do it. But the humility comes in recognizing that it is never about perfection. It is always about progress. Why? Because what marketers are asked to do is impossible. You can never fully predict how somebody is going to react. You can get it pretty close to correct, you can get it very close to correct, or you can fail miserably. But the art and science of marketing makes it constantly a work in progress discipline. It is certainly not a set it and forget it art. Interesting, yeah. And those misconceptions could be from the consumer side to your fellow C-suiters, right? What the the perception and misconception is about what the role of a marketer and CMO is. I'll give you one more. Any marketers tend to not get credit for really understanding the financials of their business. Let me assure you that when I was leading Pearl Vision, I had an entire franchise system that not only required but applauded the fact that when we were doing promotions and incentives, the first thing I went to was the retail math. You know, building out a cost per acquisition model to understand how much we could spend to acquire a patient and break even 
helped us tremendously in evaluating innovation ideas when it came to marketing. Putting the consumer first and understanding how it could drive things like average dollar, unit turn, and margin. And again, that's part of the reason why my role at Pearl expanded a little bit beyond a traditional CMO into things like store design and product promotion and visual merchandising. I, I ran buying and planning for a year on the product side as part of my responsibilities when we were moving to a managed supply chain model. So I got to really understand what we were selling and how it really related to our target from actually being responsible for doing it. And it was a, it was a great privilege. Everybody knows, at least I think they know, at least CMOs know, and I certainly know, that seemingly forever, CMOs have had the shortest average shelf life in the C-suite. Why? There's an expectation of immediate gratification when it comes to marketing. You know, you're spending millions and millions of dollars and you're being asked to deliver hundreds of millions of dollars in return. Like the ROI expectation on marketing is pretty extensive. I think there tends to be a focus that marketing is what's wrong when a business isn't working. And what I have come to find is first, the most powerful relationship a marketer could have beyond with its team and with its consumer is with their operations partner. You know, great strategy that can't be executed operationally is really nothing more than words on paper. But marketing tends to be the place that is first looked at for why a business is coming up short. I think the second thing is marketers are, are expected to learn the business very quickly. You know, the first 90 days of a marketer's tenure has to be one where you are in osmosis mode and figuring out not what to do, but what questions to ask. In addition to learning your business, learning the business economics, learning the acronyms and learning your consumer base, you got to understand it. All the while staying abreast of everything that's happening. You know, and obviously in our digital age, sure. what's new now is old 30 seconds from now, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for, you know, AI, which is the elephant in the room for so many marketers right now, you're expected, meaning you, the CMO and the marketing team are expected to go, okay, how do we use AI, for example, whatever the new shiny toy is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I go back to, there is no right way. There is no wrong way. There's just a way. I look at AI as something that you can use for good or use for evil. Most marketers are, are going to immediately be drawn to its ability to help you with things like customer service, you know, how it could pre-populate answers. Here's the danger. AI, much like any data, is only as good as the questions that you ask. AI is only as good as the inputs that you input to help shape the answers that come out. If you have a situation in a customer service perspective that's being handled by AI that is venturing into the world of discrimination, racism, anti-Semitism, gender bias, and you try to handle it with AI with a generic, I'm really sorry that you feel this way, pardon the expression, but holy shit, are you in a lot of trouble. AI doesn't empathize. AI doesn't think human. It, it can get close, but it doesn't think human. Much like when you're doing and setting up an algorithm when you're doing programmatic buying, the algorithm is only as good as the inputs you put in. So I think marketers have to appreciate that it's not going away and have to figure out how it could help accentuate. You know, an, an easy way to use it would be, hey, listen, you know, I'm torn between two different approaches to a radio script. You know, it used to be you'd have to spend a couple thousand dollars in, in asking a copywriter to do an alternative version. 
versus now you can take the existing version and put it into AI, it could spit out a couple different iterations. And that gives you a sense of how to move faster further with a little bit more of an aggressive test and learn. Right, exactly. Okay. You mentioned a few people earlier in your career, and I'm curious to see if there's been one who's had the biggest impact. Oh yeah, easy, easy. Her name was Barbara. She was my partner at GWIS. I worked for her for seven years. Barb, to this day, is very special to me. And it, it's not necessarily because of what she taught me in terms of being a marketing leader. It's what she taught me in terms of being a leader. You know, when we started GWIS together, there were a lot of fumbles and missteps. There was a big rope to climb. And she always gave me enough rope that could get me to the top and not too much rope that it could choke me out completely if it didn't work. She allowed me to have successful failures. She allowed me and gave me the platform to learn about the kind of leader I wanted to be while helping to shape it in the back end. She's one of my dearest friends today. She's somebody that I hold in the highest regard because of the human being that she was, not the brilliant marketer, and she's very smart, but again, she didn't teach me about marketing. She taught me about humanity and how to be a good leader. Mm. Okay. You mentioned music earlier. And one of my favorite songs of all time is called Lean On Me. The lyrics have always resonated with me. So my question to you about music, is there a favorite song, assuming it's not Take On Me, <laughs> by Ha Ha, nothing against them, but is there a favorite song of yours and why? Um. And I know it's hard. It's hard to pick one. I mean, no, it's a great question. It's interesting because as I think about the answer, it, it, it's kind of telling about the kind of person I am. It's you too, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you know, or where the streets have no name. It's one of those two for very different reasons. One is from a mood elevation perspective, takes you to a place of just intense energy and passion. One is very introspective. And it's interesting, as I think about both titles, it's a little bit about kind of the, the conversation that goes on in my head. The idea of charting the path forward and being challenged with writing the script on a business is something that I incredibly love. At the same time, the idea of never being satisfied that good is good enough, you know, haven't found what I'm looking for yet. That's what keeps me hungry and passionate about pushing a business forward, maybe even when people aren't looking. So that's that's deep. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> it's got, I, I could have gone to, you know, Eye of the Tiger where you're pulling your Rocky thing and just ended it. But I'll give you a little bit of deep this morning. I love that. And as we wrap up, I want to close with this. And it's about, I had this, I had this kind of epiphany, you know, as, a, as I'm putting my show together in the wall behind me and I'm going, the sound of marketing, what does that mean? When you hear the phrase, the sound of marketing, since we're talking about music, what comes to hmm. mind? Yeah, God, I, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's got a definite beat to it. But it's a beat that I think starts out slow and the intensity grows and it's got an incredible crescendo. It has a deep bass to it. It's got, you know, a chorus that you can, you know, that's a little bit of an earworm and at the end leaves you feeling satisfied that you've been on a journey. You know, some of the best songs in, in life, I mean, like it's, it's unbelievable stereotypical 
you know, Journey Don't Stop Believing is a, is a great example of a song that takes you on a journey, no pun intended, and leaves you with a feeling of just, there, there's just an, an intensity of energy, you know, where the streets have, you know, where the streets have no name, same thing. You just feel like you've been on and being told a story. And I think the, the rhythm of, of marketing, the sound of marketing is one that takes you on a story. It's not just a <coughs> intense beat, but it, it's something that takes you on a path. It has great lyrics, but if you took the lyrics out, you could almost go on your own path with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, like I said, it, it, and you're literally the first person I'm asking this, by the way. So I'm really putting you on the spot about that term, the sound of marketing. So it's interesting. Okay. What do you want the world to know about Doug Zarkin that we haven't covered already? Wow. You know, I, I think as a, as a leader, first and foremost, it really begins and ends with me with this notion of thinking human. I know you talked about it in the upfront and I appreciate it. People really matter. Climbing the mountain alone is one thing. Climbing the mountain with a team to take a group pick is something completely different and so much more enjoyable. And, and I'm really focused as I explore the next chapter in my career, you know, whether that's as, a, as another CMO or as a brand president or as a CEO, to build an organization that's human-centric that allows the team to climb the mountain together to take an epic pick. The second thing is I'm, I'm in the middle stages of, of writing my first book, which is really going to be about strengthening the brand value equation. And it's really being written for somebody who's coming out of college or somebody who's early in their career that perhaps is, is intimidated by some of the real profound literature and text in the world of marketing that gets super complex. What I tried to do is to take the complexity and make it simple using a lot of analogies and isms that I've created over the years to help break down the construct of what do you need to think about when you're trying to create brand love? You know, it's not about building a relationship between your consumer and brands. That's not good enough anymore. Not when a brand is created every moment on Instagram. You've really got to create brand love. So stay tuned on my LinkedIn page or, or um, you can go to dougzarkin.com and you'll be able to see some information coming up about when that book's going to come out. You will definitely be back on when that comes out. Thanks, for sure. buddy. Absolutely, I, I can't it. wait to I can't wait to read it, get and buy it, and get you to sign it for me. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Uh, well, listen, that's going to wrap up this episode of the CMO Whisper Show. I cannot thank my guest Doug Zargan more than enough. He is not friend; he's my brother. I love him dearly. I think so much of him, Doug. Thank you so much. Thanks, my friend. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 